Many disability studies scholars and disability rights activists argue that ableism, or the view that able-bodied people have more value than people with disabilities, has prevented people with disabilities from being fully included in society. Ableism affects many medical encounters, in part by encouraging the pursuit of normality above other goals. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Friedner, an Assistant Professor in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Dr. Friedner has co-authored a perspective article about embracing the concept of multiple normals, which suggests that there are various valid ways of interacting with the world. Dr. Friedner, in your perspective article, you described the case of a boy in an Indian village who was diagnosed as deaf as a young child. How were the implications of his deafness and the options for supporting his development explained to his parents at that time? My understanding was that his parents were told that he was deaf, that he was not normal, and that he needed hearing aids initially, and that he needed to learn how to speak. What was interesting, I think, was this focus on speaking and not necessarily listening. And usually we, speak, we think about listening and speaking or listening and spoken language, and we also think about language development. In this case, his parents were not informed about language development as being something that was important. They were told that he would need a machine and that a machine would make him hear sound and then he would be able to speak and then he would be closer to normal, or he would potentially become normal. So how did that concept of normality affect the interactions between his family and the healthcare system that they were dealing with? My understanding is that his interaction with the healthcare system was entirely oriented towards normality as a goal. So there wasn't a discussion of wellness, there wasn't a discussion of holistic development, there wasn't a discussion about language, and there wasn't even really a discussion about health. And there certainly wasn't a discussion about community-based rehabilitation. There was rather a discussion about what can we do to make this child as normal as possible. So what kind of support would have been available for the boy and his family had they chosen to help him learn sign language? Do you have a sense of what the disability inclusion and advocacy efforts look like in India? Yes. So I have actually done a lot of research on this, and my first book, looks at the experiences of Indian sign language users in India and their efforts to achieve recognition for Indian sign language and all aspects of everyday life. And what was interesting to me was in my first book, when I looked at sign language users, they often spoke of deaf people and they also spoke of normal people. However, when they talked about deaf people and normal people, what they were saying was deaf and normal were both two ways of being normal. And for them, normal meant listening and speaking, while deaf meant using sign language and sometimes using some hearing, but it meant orienting towards and focusing on Indian sign language. And so it was really interesting to see that discourse of normality and the way that normality was being used by Indian sign language users, and then to see how it was being used very differently in medical encounters and by the surgeons rehabilitation workers and government officials with whom I work for this research that I'm doing right now. And what I think is really interesting is that India has a robust disability rights movement and there's also an emerging deaf rights movement. Deaf Indian activists have been fighting for Indian sign language recognition. There's currently a campaign that Indian deaf activists are working on to have sign languages mainstreamed in school. 
And there are community-based rehabilitation efforts all around the country that work with people and villages and that work to develop Indian sign language resources in villages. India also has an Education Act, um, Education for All Children Act, and children are supposed to receive inclusive education in their schools where they are. And one thing that I want to say about the child who we call F is that when he is in his village, he actually has a fairly robust gesturing and communicative system with his family and with those around him. However, what happened was when the family decided to go ahead and implant their child, and after they wound up spending such a tremendous amount of money on the implant, this was, again, after he had hearing aids for a few years, and they were not effective in achieving or obtaining normality, they turned elected to have him implanted. And when the family spent so much money on the implant and then moved to Delhi, there was a sense among the parents that there was deep shame. You know, we are embarrassed now that we have spent all of this money and that our child is not listening and speaking. We cannot go back to the village until he is listening and speaking, until he is like normal because otherwise we're going to become the laughingstock of the village. What about the United States? Have approaches to childhood hearing loss changed over time in the United States? Is the combination of cochlear implants and sign language training frequently used? Yes. And so in the United States, the terms of the debate, I think, have changed. So the debate is no longer about the eradication of deaf culture or the eradication of deaf ways of being in the world. The debate is increasingly a debate about language deprivation and the sense that children who are being implanted do not have access to a full language in an accessible way. And so researchers have increasingly talked about the need for a bilingual approach and have stressed the fact that learning sign language is not a hindrance, that it can only be a help. How does the idea of embracing multiple normals translate to other areas of disability studies, things beyond deafness? I think it really translates. Um, I've talked with many women who are wheelchair users, for example, and they go to see their gynecologist, and their gynecologist do not ask them about their sexual practices or about reproductive health because there's an assumption that they do not have sex because they use wheelchairs or because they have disabilities, they're not sexual subjects. And I think that there's often a big push. I mean, one of the disability rights movement rallying cries and the disability justice movement as well is that we are normal the way that we are. We are whole. We are complete. We do not want to change who we are. And so I think seeing disability as a form of diversity as a way of being normal is, is really important. I mean, this is not to say, so for example, when I first went to do my field work as an anthropologist in India, I was meeting with a disability rights activist in Berkeley. And that activist told me, don't go and get polio when you're in India. And I said, ha, 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 that's a funny thing to say because she herself had had polio. And she said, yes, I don't want you to become disabled if it's something that is potentially preventable or treatable. You know, and I thought that was a really interesting point. And I think that there is tension 
it's not a black and white issue. I think that there are ways of thinking about disability that allow us to think about prevention and that allow us to think about care, but to do so in more nuanced ways without entirely orienting or entirely focusing on black and white ways of thinking about normality. So thinking about a different way of looking at disability, you talk in your article about the structural and social barriers in daily life that disability studies theorists argue are what actually produces disability. So what can physicians in the United States and around the world do to help advance inclusive infrastructure and policy? Well, one thing that I often talk to my students about is the difference between impairment and disability. And I think that's a useful distinction. I think impairment is often what is going on with the body. Disability is produced by the interaction between the body and the environment. And I think it's really important for physicians to be mindful of that and to think about the ways that they can develop more inclusive policies, infrastructures, and programs. And that starts in the clinic, talking to their patients about their disabilities in ways that are not entirely focused on cure or fixing the disability. It's about thinking about the ways that patients might participate in disability rights movements and might participate in disability activism and the ways that patients often move through everyday life in ways that are actually quite innovative, creative, and ingenious. Patients are often very adept. I just keep on saying patients, but I just say people. People are very adept at adjusting, modifying, and creating worlds in which they are whole. Neil Marcus, who's a performer and a poet with a disability and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, he has a beautiful quote in which he says, disability is an ingenious way to live. And he talks about disability as being an art form. And so I think it's really important for physicians to pay attention to disabled people's practices and strategies for living in the world and for producing themselves and seeing themselves and configuring themselves as whole people. Finally, how should physicians educate themselves about the issues facing disability communities and how should they ensure that their practices are welcoming to people with disabilities? Well, there's a few things. One, of course, there's the law. In the United States, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. But I have to say that while I think compliance is important, I also think it's important to go beyond compliance. And what that means is becoming more informed about the disability rights movement. PBS has some wonderful documentaries featuring Judith Human and Justin Dart and other leaders of the American Disability Rights Movement. I think physicians can also read works in disability studies, which is an emerging interdisciplinary field that ranges from occupational sciences to English to anthropology scholars and scholarship. And I think that physicians can also ask patients questions and try to learn from patients and from people, again, people, not patients, about what is important to them and what it means to them to have a disability. Because I should also say that as we know that disability is not a static concept, I think people have different experiences of disability and people have different philosophies and interpretations. But to me, I think the takeaway point is going beyond compliance, becoming aware of some of the issues 
that disability studies scholars are writing about and following the work of disability rights activists. The PDF documentary is called Lives Worth Living, and it focuses on the lives of a few very important disability rights activists in the United States. And so that would be something really wonderful to look at. Another thing that could be great to pick up would be Leonard Davis edits the Disability Studies Reader, and there's been a new edition that's been coming out pretty much every year or so. And this is a great compilation of short essays by leading disability studies scholars. There are also wonderful bloggers who write about disability, and there are also great Twitter feeds as well. I'm thinking about Alice Wong's Twitter feed in particular. And Alice Wong has been doing really interesting work around hashtag crypt the vote and trying to get disability rights more present and more visible within election politics in the United States. So those are some resources that could be useful. And furthermore, one very key resource would be looking at the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is easily accessible via the UN website, UN Enable. It's a very nice overview of disability. And I should note that unlike other UN treaties, the UN CRPD actually looks at social, political, and economic rights of disabled people. And so this provides a very nice blueprint for thinking about disability inclusion and access that is not simply about compliance. Thank you, Dr. Friedman.